Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. We have no choice. We have no choice. The bulk of my research takes place on sleepless nights. 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. tending to be somewhat of a golden hour. It was one such night, as news of Trump's Muslim ban and the subsequent upheaval filled my Twitter feed, that I found a list that confirmed our long-held assumption that most of my mother's family were murdered at Auschwitz. There are several ways to search online for victims of the Holocaust, but I used the database of Kazern Dossin, a museum in Belgium that sits next to the former Mechlin transit camp from which Jews and Romani were sent. Searching for Rosa Zucker candle, I'd actually had no results until I changed the match accuracy to fuzzy. This gave me page 44 of the records of the 10th transport from Mechlin to Auschwitz. Rosa's name had been recorded as Rose Zucker Handel. In fact, the K had been replaced with an H by hand. The same had been done to Philip's name. More confusingly, their father Zaya's surname was recorded as Lemberg, as was his wife Frieda's, though this also had been crossed out by hand, leaving just her maiden name of Gruber. The database had a picture of Philip attached to his entry. It looks like it came from some form of ID, an illegible quarter of a stamp across the photo's bottom right-hand corner. Philip is fair-haired and fresh-faced, 21 at the oldest. I called my mother the next day. That was actually quite poignant. Yeah, Just well, seeing, seeing it on a list. Seeing that on a piece of paper, a, the but, fact that they've all got yeah. a number. So, what exactly happened? And how did my grandfather, Adolf Zuckerkandl, by that time a stateless Jew in an occupied country, get away? My name is Andrew Evans, and this is Unboarded. As I'd already discovered from the immigration documents, as late as the 4th of May 1940, Adolf was still in Belgium, writing on behalf of his mother, brother and sister, asking if they can have permission to change their name to Lempert and become Belgian citizens, presumably feeling this would give them some degree of protection. Incidentally, it is true that those deported in the first wave were not Belgian Jews. But five days later, the deputy police commissioner replied to say he could not grant this request. The very next day, Germany invaded Belgium. However, as international lawyer Philippe Sands discovered with regards to his own grandfather, also born within the blurred borders of Lemberg, Lviv, Lvov, remaining stateless may have been an advantage. It did mean, curiously, as I learned, that because he was stateless, and because stateless people didn't get a J in their passports, in their travel documents when they left Vienna, that may well have saved him when he got to France. I mean, I think each case turns on its own particular and weird facts. But I think my grandfather may have been let slightly off the hook by the fact that he was stateless. It may have made things 
less difficult. Meanwhile, I had received my grandfather's documents from the Netherlands Institute for Military History, and here he has changed his name to Adolf Lempert. He may have taken matters into his own hands. These pages contained a photograph of him. He is in his late twenties, looking as I'd always imagined he would. Thick, black, wavy hair, dark features. He's scowling slightly, like the sun is in his eyes. He's in a uniform. All the information was in Dutch, and even with a good translation, for any real insight, I thought I'd better get some help. Starting route to Royal Air Force Museum. I'm on my way to interview a guy called Chris Hendricks, who's very kindly agreed to speak to me. Chris is head researcher there and the museum's PR executive. And whatever they're paying him, give him a raise, because he could not have been more helpful. Full disclosure, thanks to some technical difficulties, this is the second time he had to sit down with me. The destination is on your left, Royal Air Force Museum. Here we are. And I've got a little clip on mic for you if that's okay. That's fine. Good. What must have been happening in Belgium in May 1940, so the German forces, they had invaded Belgium and, and, and instantly had, had, uh, had great success. So uh, it must have dawned on him quite early on that um, that Belgium was going to get occupied and uh, with, with him inside. Mm. Um, knowing the condition or the, hard, the hardship that the Jews were in in the German Reich, he must have made that decision to, uh, to escape. Oh yeah, here it is, yeah. So there's that two-year two year gap, which is quite interesting, really. The start date on his military records is the 15th of May, 1940. But this feels as though it's been decided retrospectively. Maybe to tally with the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands. It's certainly nowhere to be found on the contemporaneous forms, only those that have been written or typed up at a later date. The first legitimate-looking date is more than two years later, June 1942, when he arrives in London via Portugal. So, how would he get to Portugal? Obviously, the first, first place to go to would be France, which would be the normal, normal route. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because things were developing quite quickly, um, a lot of Belgians then moved further south, uh, and went to Algeria and Morocco. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them went over there. So that also includes um, a lot of Belgian pilots, a lot of Belgian military personnel. And from there, because of course in June 1940, the French capitulated as well, a lot of them decided to continue the fight and, um, and, and then went to England. Now, I, I would assume because of he had the same interests, really, as in staying alive, and, mm. and, and uh, he, um, he, he, would have, he would have done something similar. Another way to do it, because of course he wasn't in the military at that point, would be no. to simply go to safety. And the best place to go to then would be Spain, or even more so Portugal. Chris describes this journey so logically, so matter-of-factly, that it's only later I think, that's a lot of borders to cross. Was it really that easy? Especially for a stateless Jew in a Nazi-occupied country. Did he even have a passport? Could you cross without one? You would have had to have documents to allow you to travel. I put this to Philippe Sands, and, like all the best experts, he doesn't claim any authority outside of his fields of expertise, but he does carefully reason from the facts of his grandfather's life. He must have travelled from Austria to Poland without a passport. 
I establishing that it was possible to do so. I think it was difficult, but easier than it would be today. Passport or not, Adolf made it to Portugal. And why Portugal? Because the difference between Portugal and Spain is that because although both countries were neutral, mm -hmm. uh, Spain was pro-German, while right. Portugal was pro-allied. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a bit of a difference there. And Portugal, especially the capital Lisbon, was, was quite of a, a haven for, um, for, for allied, especially British spies and diplomats. So okay. it was a bit of a port to get into the, the European continent. Indeed, with their priceless letters of transit, it is to Lisbon that Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were headed in the movie Casablanca. So if you'd made it to Portugal, you'd made it. For now, you're safe. Congratulations, Adolf. You've just escaped the Nazis. But he carried on. Not only did he arrive in England, but almost immediately joined the, the Dutch forces. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just wondering what would have accounted for that. And, and my guess is that when we look in at early 1942, when he must have taken that decision, mm. um, the war wasn't going all that great for the Allies. Um, it was right. only until November 1942, the Battle of Stalingrad, the Battle of El Alamein, mm -hmm. that the tables really turned uh, and that the Allies were, were advancing. Until that point, the German troops seemed to be quite invincible, really. So it's only when they overstretched. Yes, right. yes, exactly. Um, and so he, it must have dawned on him that uh, at some point he needs to stand up and fight. Um, mm. It's difficult to kind of gauge like what, 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 his, what his state of mind must, must have been. And I'm also wondering like what kind of contact he still had with the people back home. Mm. I'm curious about that as well. If there was contact, for sure, they must have, he must have found out that the conditions were deteriorating for the Jews because... Um, how it happened was while in, in early on in 1940 there was discrimination, there was registration of the Jews, mm -hmm. but very gradually the number of rules and limitations increased. So life was, was very slowly but, but definitely uh, deteriorating for mm -hmm. the Jews. So he might, might have been able to pick up on that as well and that might have stuck in his mind. Maybe sure. there was a bit of guilt as well. This kind of a feeling of, oh, well, I escaped, but my family's still there. If I want to do anything to rescue them, well, maybe I need to fight as well. I don't know what he knew, and I can't be sure when he made it to Portugal. It could be any time between May 1940 and June 1942. Maybe he left late with the express purpose of joining the military. Or maybe he got there sometime in 1940 and took a while to choose his next move. I wondered what the Belgian reaction had been to the Nazi occupation and anti-Jewish legislation. I was somewhat heartened to learn that when it came time to distribute the yellow badges, Belgian civil authorities in Brussels risked refusing to do so. In Antwerp, the German authorities were unable to enforce the policy at all when non-Jewish citizens wore the armbands themselves in protest. Maybe these acts of resistance played no part in my grandfather's survival and my existence. Maybe they bought him just enough time. There had always been a story of him escaping a camp, but from what I can tell, the Jews of Belgium weren't ordered to Mechelen transit camp until July 1942, by which time he was definitely in London. So it seems as though another version my mother heard is more likely. I told seems you they, they were meant to be, well, leaving the country All on a boat. Them. Yeah. On a boat? On a boat, the whole okay. family. 
yeah. apparently. Mm -hmm. Like other people just getting away from the country. Yeah. And different families with their suitcases. Mm -hmm. And they paid to get on. It was all legit to do it. Yeah. But when they got on the boat, the Germans had already got on. Okay. And everybody was on there. They up. just captured and took them off to where they wanted to take them. My grandfather, for whatever reason, just never boarded this boat. On the 15th of September, 1942, Zaya, Frieda, Rosa and Philip are deported on the 10th transport from Mechlin Transit Camp to Auschwitz Extermination Camp. By this time, Rosa's profession is listed as fur tailor, like her father. Philip is a student, Frieda a housewife. They're murdered in the Shoah. Again, how much of this my grandfather knew at the time, I can't say. What I do know is that as part of 320 Squadron, he became a navigator and served throughout the war. 320 Squadron was a Dutch squadron, initially formed from the personnel of the Royal Netherlands Naval Air Service. They literally escaped with eight planes during the German invasion and made it to England. What, what I find very interesting in this, talking from, an, from a Royal Air Force historian, is uh, the documents written in Dutch show that uh, he was part of the Dutch military forces, which right. in reality didn't exist anymore. They were completely part of the British forces. This quirk of having a parallel Dutch military record at a time when the Dutch military was not technically a thing is interesting to Chris as a Royal Air Force historian, but it's interesting to me because, as we know... We're talking about the Dutch forces, but right. from everything I know, he wasn't Dutch. No. And so they can only have got that information from him. In addition to giving his name as Adolf Lempert, he gives his birthplace as The Hague. Was this common? Was this a thing? Yes. Um, so what you have to understand is in May 1940, um, there was disarray. There was, there was, there was no organisation worth mentioning. Mm. Um, so Belgium and Holland, they were overrun within days. France, in a matter of weeks, um, which led to a great number of refugees. Um, and a breakdown of normal communication channels and organisation. By this stage, he spoke several languages, including Dutch, and Lisbon was a pretty good place to get forged documents. But really, this may not have even been necessary. Obviously, they would have seen or, or realised that he's not Dutch because he, for sure he would have had a very thick accent. Mm. Um, as we see, very often that was not a problem. Right. We see, um, during World War II, we see 15, 16-year-old boys signing up, claiming that they are 18 mm -hmm. and getting away with it. Yeah. We see um, the oldest, oldest uh, person on a bomber aircraft was 65 mm -hmm. um, because he, he basically forged his, his ID and uh, uh, claimed he was a lot younger. Right. So it wasn't all that hard, really, to kind, okay. of, uh, to kind of change it. And on the other hand... I don't think the authorities really mind either. I think they would have been happy with any able-bodied man to, to join. Knowing what I do about his personality, it's tempting to imagine him just talking his way into the Air Force and surviving on charm alone. So I asked Chris how he would have become a navigator. What would have happened? Well, so what happened is that he would have, he would have joined. Um, they would have examined him um, physically, mentally, intellectually. Mm -hmm. um, and they would have also asked him, so what would you like to do? And he would, he would probably have said, well, 
maybe he would have said, oh, I want to be a pilot. Mm. So a lot of them actually end up like saying, oh, I want to be a pilot, because it just makes sense. Um, And then most of them do not end up being pilot and also not really assigned to it. Um, But they would, the RAF would try to find the best possible uh, way to use you. Uh, So they must have realized at some point that he he was either technically or, 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 or intellectually quite suited for the navigator role. They needed to be calm. Um, brave, but not stupidly brave, so still rational. Yes, not reckless. And no doubt, the navigator um, had to be good at math, uh, or at least have that ability to to, to calculate under stress. I would say, together with the pilot, the navigator and the flight engineer, they were the three most technical roles within Mm -hmm. the aircraft. Uh, a bomb aimer less so, a mm-hmm. uh, wireless operator probably had to be a bit more technical, but he had more of a limited role. Also, he doubled as a, as a gunner. And right. uh, the, the thing about gunners is that they really only had to do one thing, and that yeah, is just sure. be able to, to shoot straight. As long as you have a good eye. Yes, pretty yeah. much. So, okay. uh, and, and they might have to be a bit reckless in a way. It's very much teamwork, really. So they were all very, very closely connected. And the best crews were those who were good at that, at actually working well together. And were they crews, was that your crew? Would they stay together? Yes. Always been there? Yes, indeed. So when a crew was together, they stayed together. They were a very closely knit family. And I guess the main reason is that they all depended on each other for their survival. Mm. You cannot really get much closer than that. I think it's fair to say he earned that medal that currently sits on my bedside table. He must have been very inventive, really. Um, I mean, to not only having, having uh, that ability to adapt, uh, moving from, from, from one place to the other, uh, you know, like com- going from, from what is now Ukraine, mm. uh, then to Holland, then to Belgium, then also escaping all the way to Portugal. Um, I, I, I think by that time, it's, it's, you, you must have been quite a survivor, really. Mm. Uh, and then to, to get to England, uh, he must have been very strong in his head, and that must have been something that they recognized as well. If you ever wonder what you would have done during the rise of fascism in the 30s, just look at what you're doing now, because it's happening again. I'd heard this question, or versions of it, posed before. During the George W. Bush administration specifically, the invasion of Iraq, the Patriot Act, Guantanamo. It wasn't a question I took all that seriously then. Godwin's Law, etc. But lately... Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! Ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. What did you say it with me? We If you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. We will build a great wall along the southern border. As a leading human rights lawyer, Philippe Sands knows more than a thing or two about the horrors humanity is capable of. It's something that I think about now, unfortunately, with increasing frequency. I didn't think about that in the time of the George W. Bush administration. I mean, I thought he was, you know, objectionable and doing lots of stupid things. But but within the broad framework and everything that they tried to do, 
they tried to justify within the existing rules. The Trump administration actually, you know, wants to destroy the rules, hell-bent on destroying the 1945 order, and there is method to what they are doing. We are in very different times now from the time of Bush. I mean, I think about that question a lot, and also, obviously, what do we do about it? Doing nothing is not an option, but we all feel relatively powerless. And so I think one of the things that we can do that is different is we can talk about it and not bury our head in the sands and not assume it'll just go away. only have to look at the city in which this story began. One of the powerful effects for me of spending time in a city like Lviv, which was in the 1920s and 30s, a thriving metropolis with lots of different communities, was it was unimaginable that their world would be utterly and totally destroyed. And yet it was. And I look around London now where I live and ask myself the question, could that also happen here? And of course the answer is why not? I don't think we can assume that somehow human nature has changed and the human being's capacity to do terrible things to each other has somehow disappeared. I don't think it has disappeared. And I think that we need to be acutely alert to the risks and to the dangers. Next time on Unboarded, we come to that controversial third act. Essentially, the reason I never met my grandfather. How he became a persona non grata, shrouded in mystery. Hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. The Unboarded podcast is written and presented by me, Andrew Evans, with contributions from my mother, Lynn Evans, from Professor of Law at UCL, Philippe Sands, and from Chris Hendricks of the RAF Museum in Hendon. Abstracts of the immigration documents were provided by John Burren. Visit unboardedpodcast.com to see pretty much all the documents mentioned here, as well as links to episodes and a playlist of the soundtrack. If you would like to get in touch, please tweet me at unboarded pod or email me at unboardedpodcast at gmail.com. Unboarded.